Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Um, last year in season one, we looked at the fortunes of the Beatles across all the Christmases of the 1960s when they were a unit living and working out of each other's pockets. And today, uh, we're going to take a different track. We're going to look at how they evolved through their Christmases in the 1970s. It tells a tale very different to the one in the 1960s where they went from finding themselves in Hamburg to losing each other by the end of the decade. And it's uh, it's the last decade when all four of them were fully active and had stuff to do, really, didn't they? Yep, I think so. Uh, the last uh, before they all turned thirty. Well, exactly, and it's uh, it's um, it it tells another interesting story when you kind of break it down and look at it year on year, just to see exactly how they all evolve and spin off into different directions and kind of form the versions of John, Paul, Ringo, and George that we we know of today. So we're going to look at from nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy nine, and this is going to be a two parter. So we're going to look at the top of the decade as uh, as DJs say and a reminder that when we get to Christmas 1970 on Christmas Day 1970 just to make everybody feel bad about themselves uh, John Lennon is only 30 Ringo Starr is only 30 Paul McCartney is 28 and on Christmas Day 1970 George Harrison is 27 years old always younger than Paul always younger than Paul had you um, yeah, I don't know. Do you ever play the mortality game where you uh, you put yourself up against what was so-and-so doing by the time they were my age? It's a dangerous I, thing to think about. Well, when you get to my age, it's a very dangerous thing <laughs> to think about. I used to do that all the time, but not anymore. Yeah, I used to always think Neil Tennant. He wasn't famous till he was in his mid-30s, but then that goes yeah. uh, sailing by. Anyway, so let's rewind the clock and go back all these Christmases ago, back to Christmas uh, 1970. And we're going to kind of look at this uh, uh, each year as the Beatles overall, and then we'll pick apart what each individual Beatle was, was doing. And Christmas 1970... Uh, is the last Christmas when all four Beatles are in the UK at the same time. And in terms of what the band collectively were doing, obviously 1970 was the year when uh, it all fell apart. And April 1970, as we've said earlier on in this season, is when McCartney came out and the headlines tipped over into the Beatles of Split. Um, So by the time you get to Christmas 1970, there are no Beatles and there isn't any defined course for what a, a band should do once they split up. So because it's the first Christmas without a Beatles Christmas record, we get the Christmas record fan club compilation. That's it. From then to you. See what they did there? I see what they did there. So uh, they, 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 they combine all of the previous flexi discs. Now, these these flexi discs had only ever been issued in the UK. They, they'd not been issued in the US. But there is a 12-inch vinyl LP uh, issued in America as well as in the UK. So this is the first time that the American market is getting these Christmas discs. And as we said last year, even in 1969, when you know everything was falling apart for Christmas 1969, there was a Beatles flexi club uh, fan club disc. Uh, and this kind of compilation album of um, the fan club discs is something that people have sort of expected to get an official release over the years. And it's never really mm. happened. The When they made it back at the time, they didn't have the master tapes, sure they didn't. Yes, this is this is the fun fact. Uh, they couldn't find the original master tapes, so they had to go to Frida Kelly, who was the the official fan club secretary at the time, and ask her could she lend them 
uh, her Lexi discs from across the years, and they use those to compile the LP. Yeah, it's it's amazing how people still weren't cataloging all this kind of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, the, the 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 Christmas fan club album was the the last of the official Christmas releases, and very collectible. Yeah, and it's uh, but, I I I do think the way they put out the box set, single box set a few years back is possibly the best way to present some of this kind of stuff. I think if you put it on an album these days, people will think it's an album full of Christmas songs and it's just yeah, not, obviously. Uh, I, I think so. But it, it, the original, if you can find the original, what I would say, word of caution, it has been extremely heavily bootlegged. Yes, yes. And yes. it can be very difficult uh, to tell um, uh, an original from the bootleg copy. We need a, what's his name, Parlogram Auctions to tell us what's to, going to, on. Yes, to, to, to get in. To um, give, give us a big uh, but, spiel on But again, that. If, if anyone has an original American <laughs> or UK version that they would like to donate to the Nothing Is Real Museum, yep. uh, we give it a good home. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry, I will give it a good home. Yes. Um, the other thing that happens is on uh, TV that Christmas 1970, A Hard Day's Night gets its UK television premiere. And it's, you know... It, I know it's a bit of a an obvious thing to say, but my God, what a change in six years, yeah. you know, uh, to, to sit in 1970 and turn on the telly and see this movie from 1964. It must have been like, I can't imagine sitting down this Christmas in 2020 and looking at something from 2014 and thinking I'm really going to be able to notice anything specifically different. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It, it, it's probably the fact that uh, you're watching this black and white mop top movie at a time when you know they all have beards they all have long hair uh john and yoko have appeared naked on the cover of an album um you know the band have split up every it's it's ridiculous the the, the sort of changes they've gone through in that period so for the four beatles then john uh, in december uh, 1970 he uh has you know, put out the Plastic Ona Band album a few weeks earlier. And uh, John and Yoko in December 1970, they're over in New York. They do fly back to London on Christmas Eve and spend their last Christmas in the UK. But fly is a, a good I, link. I, I see what you did there. <laughs> a good link to what they were doing in New York because they were making their, you know, fantastically... Uh, Interesting, uh, Interesting experimental movies films. That, that, that really, if you want to do a contrast between A Hard Day's Night and uh, the first of those films, Up Your Legs Forever. And tell us about Up Your Legs Forever. Um, Up Your Legs Forever. Um, it is available on YouTube. It is. It, it is. I think it runs for an hour and 10 minutes, something like that. Um, and what's the plot, Stephen? The plot. Uh, the plot um, is missing. Well, I've, got, I, I've actually got the entire script. Oh, okay. The, the shooting script. So the entire script reads, the camera work of the film should constantly go up, 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 non-stop. Collect 367 pairs of legs and just go up the legs from toes to the end of thighs, pair after pair, and go on up until you run through the whole 367. So yes. essentially, this, this, is, this is a bit like um, Yoko's Bottoms film yeah except you don't see uh, anybody's bottom except uh except at the very end you see john and yoko's bottom which is you know always a treat um <laughs> but uh the other 367 uh you you get to see their knees essentially yeah it's just um, like a slow pan you don't get to see any uh, to to evoke kenny everett naughty bits no you don't get to see anything uh but th th this is this is just another one of their slightly odd films they they I think the the background to this is they had agreed to put films into a, a sort of artsy film competition or, 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 or show them. And then, of course, having agreed to do that, they had to come up with a film. Um, yeah. So this, this, this does date all the way back to Yoko's book, Grapefruit. Mm -hmm. so I'm a big fan of that. She has um, these were a series of instructional poems. And uh, there's a, a poem... Uh, summer 1963 called fly peace p-i-e-c-e -E, and the poem is fly fantastic well read that's, that's great well read because um, uh, that's the other film they make is the fly film yes and, yes and this is what they drugged some flies and put them <laughs> on a woman's body correct me yes. if i'm wrong well we've all been there <laughs> Um, no, we haven't. We haven't. In case no, anyone's no, listening, uh, anyone, you know, your honor, any, any legal. Yes. Um, the, the idea, the idea here, uh, is that they, that, that they had a woman lying naked and, um, there were close-ups of, of a fly wandering around her body so that you become focused on the fly itself and the woman's body just becomes like a landscape. 
it says here. Um, but yes, the, <laughs> the flies, the flies, hard to get flies in New York in December. That was the first thing. Yeah. Um, I had to go to restaurant kitchens, which is not a particularly good God. Uh, advertisement. Uh, and then they had to actually, yes, gas them uh, so that they kind of staggered around uh, instead of just uh, flying off. Uh, well, if that doesn't put you in the Christmas mood, uh, I don't know what will. Um, it's it's also that that month when they're kind of talking to you know the Jan Wenner interview has come out in Rolling Stone, so that's yep. what John is getting the headlines for. Um, and uh, you know, all in all, you could argue that John's had a pretty good 1970. He's staked his claim for it. He's he's carved out his own niche. He he kind of has a sense of self, and it seems like he knows what he's up to. Yes, he does. I mean, that the Wenner interview has sort of gone on to be the stuff of legend. And uh, it, it, there's three and a half hours of audio mm. for that. And I noticed the entire thing is up on YouTube. Yeah, if you the want audio. to listen to that, we'll sort of stick uh, if you want to go look at things. it. So some of, some of that interview, I think, uh, is is worth hearing rather than reading because you do you do get a better sense of his context his and his, his anger yeah. and his, his sort of frustration yeah so let's go maybe to Ringo next because Ringo for Christmas 1970 he was a new dad his daughter Lee had been born in November and yeah. uh, I think the most important thing to happen to any ex-Beatle in the 1970s um, was when at Christmas 1970 he gave his wife that beautiful gift that we all love to give our loved ones which was let me check my notes here um, Perspex filled with mercury yes it's it's the traditional Christmas gift. It is. I think, I don't know, is it a fifth Christmas? Who knows when it's mercury-filled like perspex. Yeah. Um, but the thing we've talked about before in this show is uh, Ringo's um, furniture design emporium uh, and expertise, <laughs> and uh, yes. which was Ringo or Robin, run with Robin uh, Cruikshank. And so this is an early Ringo and Robin uh, fair that he gets, he thinks, Ringo thinks these things are hugely entertaining. Perspex yes. discs full of mercury. I mean, why why not have a chewable carcinogen near a child? Uh, it seems I, like a perfect idea. I was going to say, we have a baby in the house. Let's get some mercury. <laughs> and uh, uh, But Ringo or Robin, uh, it, it, I mean, what is interesting when you look at the some of the research for this is that Ringo or Robin actually had more legs than we think. We, we've kind of joked about it before, but it, 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 it was an, an, an entity that uh, in its first yes. form went on for like a decade and a half. It did. I mean, it 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 only sort of uh, they ceased working together, or or, or the that organisation ceased in 1986, and it began um, in 1968. So in 1968, Robin Cruikshank's design company began working for Apple first of all, and then in 1969, when Ringo moved house, he got Robin mm -hmm. uh, to come and help him do some of the the, the designs and. Uh, one of the first things was a stainless steel fireplace. Um, I'm sure Ringo had somebody to clean the stainless steel Good fireplace. Good Lord, how hot would that get? Well, again, small children in the house. <laughs> <laughs> this oh is God. the kind of health, health and safety out the window. Mm, different time. Um, and he's an interesting but, guy, Robin Cruikshank. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's he had credentials. He wasn't like a Magic Alex type figure. No, 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 no. He he is a he's a British designer. He's uh, you know he's still going. Um, well, this is the amazing thing that uh, you pointed out to me is that uh, listeners can go and visit R O R int.com roarint.com to yeah. see the modern day Ringo or Robin website because Ringo essentially gave him the ROR trademark and it still trades. It, it, it's still going and it, it, it says there he's designed interiors for palaces in Abu Dhabi luxury developments in the UK and Miami so it's, it's a long way from uh, sort of these designs that they were doing in the 60s. The, the famous one that they talk about is uh, they were out for a walk and they walked past a a sort of a, a, a motor accessory shop that had a Rolls Royce radiator mm. uh, sort of in the window, presumably. And they thought, well, if we got two of those, we could put some stainless steel in between and make a table. And that was one of their first designs. And these, some of them are extremely innovative and some of them are just etchings on mirrors and things mm. like that. And you can, you can buy, uh, you know, they're available. They turn up on eBay. Um, you know, if you have four or 500 pounds, you can buy a, a Ringo or Robin original mirror. And they did, you know, I, I've, I saw recently a picture of their showroom. They had a shop. There was a Ringo or Robin yeah. shop on the high street that you could go and visit uh, in the mid 70s. And uh, as you say, yeah, they kept, uh, you know, they, they had um, showrooms uh, in the 70s that were in Francis Wharf near the 
uh, Tate Gallery. They moved to Rathbone Place in the West End. And uh, then they moved into various offices as they went into the 80s. And then they sort of ceased trading as a, as a duo. But the trademark, as we said, still lives on today. Go to roarint.com to see what Robin Cruikshank is up to these days. Yeah. Well, we mentioned, I think, on a previous episode, the mirror they made for Harry Nilsson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where with they, the noose. But they it, et- etched a noose into it so that when he was uh, shaving in the mirror, his head was in a noose. And even Harry wasn't prepared to put up with that. And they had to change. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Ringo's having, a, you know, an instant Christmas with Perspex-filled, uh, or Mercury-filled, uh, Perspex or Perspex-filled Mercury? Perspex-filled Mercury I, would be I, a very I think good, I've been uh, on the Christmas twist. sherry already. <laughs> and, uh, and George, as we've said already in our um, All Things Must Pass episodes, he's, he's kind of the king of Christmas. He's number he's the, one in the singles and the albums, and he's just king of the world. He's, he's the king himself. of the world. He's got his yep. beard and his lovely hair. It's all, he's fantastic. Everything's, everything's coming up. Harry Krishna. Everything's coming up Harry Krishna. So Paul uh, is having maybe this slightly more stressful Christmas. He's he spent the end of 1970 um in in October November he's off in New York putting together the start of Ram and then he comes back to Scotland to spend another uh, end of year um, another another chilly Christmas. Oh, another in, yeah, uh, I was gonna, yeah, another sort of end of year sort of abstinence or punishment up in the the, the uh, wilds I, of Scotland. But yeah, he's it, is he is he I don't know. He's he's getting his briefs ready. Would you say? He, uh, possibly he uh, <laughs> he knows what's he knows what's coming. I mean, the, clearly um, in in the run up to the end of the year, there's been a lot of sort of legal machinations. And uh, so he knows, he, he's been told by the Eastmans, the only way to get yourself out of this situation. Um, and Paul is always quite clear that he just wants to get out. He just wants to be able to walk away. Yeah. And the Eastmans have, have had to sit him down and explain to him, the only way you can do this is to sue the other three members of the partnership mm. um, to extricate yourself from this. So he's, he's sort of forced into this, um, position and uh, he he effectively has to sue John George Ringo and Applecore. And the the history books always talk about um, you know that it happens on December thirty first that he sues them in 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 court. But there's stuff that goes on preliminarily <laughs> a few weeks earlier in mid November, doesn't he? So it's would they have had any kind of inkling that he would have known this or what's the how does how does that work well you can what what happens is um and i'm not providing independent legal advice to yes, any, yes, on we're any specific yes yes we're just chatting as friends i understand uh, we're just yes. chatting as friends um if you issue a writ you mm-hmm. basically you take that to the court they stamp it and then you have a set period of time uh within which you have to serve it mm-hmm. uh on the other party so my understanding is that the the writ actually issued from the the court office mm. um and then was served on the 31st uh but it was of, issued of a few weeks December. earlier in november yes but yes i guess john george and ringo and apple wouldn't have known until they get the what is it a subpoena or a notice or a or oh, no they, they actually get served with a copy of the writ itself so okay. so they would have known before christmas they would that have this known was coming. They would, they would have known before christmas that it was coming and but the general uh, public don't know until it lands in the courts no, and I think it's I, I, as as you know from my professional eye. I think it's a very nice touch to serve it on uh, New Year's Eve. I I, I, well, I admire the sort of uh, you know, <laughs> of serving it on uh, New but, Year's but, Eve. But yeah, well, I guess you know everyone's going to be at home, and uh, you know they can yeah. uh, they can s- skulk around and figure out what's going on. It's. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a numerology person, but, you know, the Beatles always sort of signified the 60s. And there's something poetic that they did their last session on the 2nd and 3rd of January 1970. And then they ceased to exist on the 31st of December 1970. It it yeah. it, it fits and it makes sense. But it, that's... It, it does. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I, I think there is a certain sort of... Uh symmetry to that yeah so so yeah so 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 that lawsuit is coming and you know paul as you say he just 
says this thing repeatedly, and we'll come back to this later, that he just wants to sign a piece of paper and he just wants to be over and done with and he just wants to get his bit done. And th- there's this kind of revisionism, you know, classic Paul, where he has like an interview version of it, which he, you see in many years from now, where he says, well, mm. I didn't want to do it and I had to do it. Can you imagine how hard it was to sue the Beatles? I knew I was going to be the bad guy and it was awful. And, and it does have ramifications because he's seen as the guy who jumped ship in April and now he's seen as the guy who's suing them. It, it, it does put him... It, it, make him appear that way it does and i think what what we always say about paul what everyone always says about paul is he's the great master of pr (laughs) yes and uh this is a disaster from a pr point of view Mm. um so it may well have been the only way to deal with this but but it's a pr disaster and once again when this happens he's in scotland Mm. You know, so he's taken himself off. We we talked um, in the McCartney episode about him sort of absenting himself from Apple in, in, in the latter stages of, of 69 and allowing sort of business decisions effectively had to go on, be taken without him. And uh, it's the same thing here. He's the, the, the proceedings have been issued and he's nowhere to be seen and he's not in control of the PR narrative, I suppose. I, I do like the, the details in the suit that says it's filed against John Ono Lennon of Ascot, Berkshire, George Harrison of Henley-on-Thames, Berkshire, Richard Starkey of Highgate, London, and Apple Corps of Savile Road. It's a it's a long way from Liverpool 8, all of that, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. And, and uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned that interview with uh, with him in, in many years from now, and he says, these truest friends of mine were now my firmest enemies overnight. I'd grown up in this group. This was my school, my family, my life. There you go. Um, still, but I'll see you all in court. <laughs> yeah, and and he does that secondary thing, which 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 he also says in interviews, which was you know because I did this thing, we now don't have Alan Klein's name on Beatle Records, and that's a dick at the Stones, basically. You know, uh, I think so. I mean, he says in that interview, we we did rescue the Beatle millions. We that's himself and the Eastmans, and he said I had to do it. It was that or letting Klein have the whole thing, all the fortune fortune we'd worked for all our lives since we were children. And you think, well, Alan Klein was getting 20% of any increase revenue, increase in revenue. So mm. it's not all of the fortune. No. Um, but anyway, we can go into Alan Klein in more depth some other day. So that's Christmas 1970. A lot going on. And the last one, as I said, when all four of them are in the UK. So then we go to Christmas 1971. And uh, in terms of just general group activity, you know, Hard Day's Night is on um, BBC One again because the, the the BBC are getting into this vibe that there's usually a a Christmas Beatles uh, movie on uh, at Christmas time. Uh, but we might start by focusing in on John because at this point, John is essentially uh, based in New York. He has gone to New York at the end of summer 1971 and he never returns to the UK again. No, and um, uh, he has put out Imagine, and the first thing he records post Imagine is the song everybody knows and loves, which is "Happy Christmas, War Is Over." Yep, and uh, and it is the first song that is ex- it's ex- exclusively recorded by John in New York, which I think yes. is interesting, and I think it's an interesting border song between everything before it and everything after it. It is. I mean, I think it's it, if you look from Imagine to the follow up album, which is sometime in New York City, I mean, they are absolutely poles apart. Yeah. And this, this song, in terms of its uh, style, its production, um, the musicians, everything about it sort of sits very neatly in between the two. It, it, it's a sort of transition from one to the other. So the song Happy Christmas War is Over is uh, it comes together in actually October. And as it falls, you know, just in terms of when it's released, it doesn't actually get released in the UK until 72, but it gets released in the US in 71. Yep. But it is it is of 71. And as I said, it's the first thing he does after Imagine comes out. So it, it, it seems to come together quite quickly, doesn't it? It, it does. And we, we, we have a good sort of eyewitness account. Uh, we talked before about uh, the journalist Ray Connolly and his part in, in, in the Beatles story. Um, he's a journalist at the London Evening Standard, but he had been invited by John and Yoho to journey to New York, um, essentially uh, to, to come and visit them at their hotel, which is the uh, St. Regis Hotel. And that's um, where they're living. They don't, they're, we're not it, into any of the Dakota or any of that stuff yet. They, they start their time in New York living in this hotel. 
that's it. They're, they they have a suite at the St Regis Hotel, and um, so Ray Connolly is is sort of hanging out there, and and he gives a very good snapshot. He says it's like the headquarters of a counterculture movement. Abby Hoffman's hanging out. Jerry Rubin. Um, he refers to them as sort of latching on to John and John being quite uh, naive, but clearly John and Yoko are there and holding uh, court. But he then records the fact that uh, John starts recording demo versions of what will become Happy Christmas War is Over. And one of the things he says, it says, John quickly turned the melody of the folk song Stew Ball into the festive song Happy Christmas War is Over while sitting with his guitar on a sofa in the St. Regis uh, suite. A few weeks later, he and Yoko would record it a few blocks away. Um, so he is very clear uh, that this is John adapting a folk song. And I think this is something we, we, we touched on before. Well, I never, um, I, I only heard the song Stew Ball for the first time about four years ago. And the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening uh, to this today who might not know the song Stew Ball. Um, so don't pause the podcast, go and listen afterwards. But you, uh, it, it's, it's a, it is an old folk song. Peter, Paul and Mary had had a hit about 63 with it mm. um the hollies had had it in their set their kind of post um, um graham nash. yeah post graham nash hollies when they were kind of heading into their kind of uh uh you know more cabaret type years they were on bbc yeah. there's footage of them on the bbc in 68 69 performing it and yeah it's a it's a folk song about a racehorse and it is yeah. essentially the melody of happy christmas war is over and when you hear it you're like oh uh, why is this not more well appropriated well yes i mean you 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 sort of think about uh you know my sweet lord and he's Mm. so fine i mean it's at least as as obvious uh um as that the version that i know knew first was by joan Baez, but it's the peter paul and mary version um you know the, the the melody the rhythm the chord changes everything. It's a direct lift. It's a direct lift. Now, having said that, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Happy Christmas War is Over, and I think it's a fantastic uh, piece. Well, it's blunted by familiarity, I guess. I, I, I suppose, I suppose so. And uh, you know, you know, it, 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 it's interesting that at either end of the seventies, uh, you know, we get a Christmas song from Lennon and McCartney, one from Lennon and one from McCartney, and obviously it'll be in part two when we talk about the better song, but. Uh, the <laughs> but for, it's... for me for yeah for for, for <laughs> oh dear uh for me it's, for me for me it's the lyric okay what's, what's uh, with the lyric it, that you well like? the lyric is uh another year over a new one just begun and i thought no it's happy christmas it's your he's you know that makes no sense yeah John. objection overruled. overruled uh the um but you know, to, to, it, it is, it, they, they've both written, Lennon and McCartney, these kind of Christmas standards that are still trotted out after all these years. And it's interesting to, to see that they are so fundamentally different as songs. Uh, are you saying that George hasn't written a Christmas standard? Um, well, I haven't, I haven't scuttled that far ahead in my notes yet. I, I, I know where this is going. I, I, we'll, I, come, we'll come. <laughs> on we, to we will get there. Um, but uh, yeah, the, he records "Happy Christmas War Is Over" in uh, New York uh, in the record plant, and the record plant is obviously going to be his big haunt for the rest of the seventies. Mm. It's a very significant place. In some ways, it's his. It's the Abbey Road of his solo years uh, for 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 many recordings, um, and. And he has to record in the afternoon, doesn't he, because of the choir? Yes. So the the, the the recording takes place over a couple of days, and we have Phil Spector is back. Uh, he's he's producing this, and uh, we we mentioned you know Stew Ball. Phil Spector apparently remarked that the opening line, "So this is Christmas," is exactly the same as a nineteen sixty one single called "I Love How You Love Me" by the Paris Sisters, okay. which is a Spector production. So he's he's. Ripping things off all over the place. Uh, John also tells the guitarists, uh, listen to Try Some, Buy Some, yes. which is the Ronnie Spector single that George wrote for, and he said, you have some nice mandolins on that. So could we have some of that? So he's he's sort of picking and choosing. But yes, they, they have to record because they get a 30-strong thir- uh, children's choir in the uh, Harlem Community Choir come in mm. in the afternoon on the 31st of October to do the backing vocals and it's that session if you, if you see the original single there's a picture sleeve yes and uh, ian mcmillan uh the photographer uh is there and he's taking taking photographs on that day 
Um, but you talked about Ray Connolly, and you know, Ray Connolly has an interesting role in all of this because what we're trying to get into is the fact that John and Paul are having a, a bit of an interaction as we head into Christmas 1971. It's is... very tactfully put. <laughs> and um, so Ray Connolly is involved in somewhat being a, an intermediary, although some of these interactions are in public and some of them are in private. Yes. So, I mean, we, we a, a few weeks uh, into December, um, John and Paul start having a very public spat in the pages of uh, Melody Maker, where Paul gives an interview and then John uh, writes an open letter that Melody Maker um, publish in full. But um, Ray Connolly talks about being in the St. Regis Hotel. And then he says, I left New York carrying a private letter from John to deliver to Paul. Um, an attempt by John to bypass the managers and lawyers who were engaged in a bitter feud between the two former friends. As it transpired, the legal wrangle, wrangles would drag on for years, so my efforts as a go-between clearly did not work. Um, so this must have been sort of late October, more likely early November. Mm. Ray Connolly has delivered, a, 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 I suppose, a sort of a, an, a peace overture from, from John um, to Paul. Yeah, and this is a private letter that we don't yeah. really know what he what he says in that. And Paul no. is still very much at this time giving interviews of saying, "Oh, I just want to, you know, sign a piece of paper and and uh, you know, let it all be over." But he's also having to bat away Paul the notion of, you know, imagine us come out in around September time and how do you sleep is on that yes. and you know, that's part of this kind of slinging match that's going on and you know, hey, Paul says, "I like straights. I'm fine with that yeah. whatever john says blah yeah. blah blah but so so paul is is it it it's this idea of paul as the pr man so he he's sort of gathered himself mm. uh, um we are coming up uh the first wings album i forget what it's called uh is going to come <laughs> out is going to come out on the 7th of december yes um so he's doing a little bit of pre publicity but as you say there's there's constantly this um uh, the journalists just want to ask, well, what do you think about John? What do you think he's meant by this? What about that song? What about this song? So Paul gives a very long interview to Chris Charlesworth of Melody Maker that appears uh, in the November 20th issue. Mm. And he basically, you know, addresses a lot of the issues um, and hits back at uh, John about how do you sleep, etc. This uh, then annoys John so much that he pens this uh, open letter, and suddenly all of this uh, is is being played out in public. So Paul starts off by again, as you say, just saying, "Well, it's just I just want the four of us to get in a room, sign a bit of paper. Everybody thinks I'm the aggressor, but all I just want out." And this this attempt by Paul to spin the story, um, uh, you know, infuriates John. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yeah, he talks in the interview about, you know, yeah, you know, uh, how do you sleep, whatever, it's silly, you know, he knows it's not true. And, you know, he, you know, talks about, you know, his, his vision for what he wants. He, he refers to John's, uh, you know, attending the Toronto concert in 1969. And he calls John and Yoko not cool, you know, and uh, it's the worst insult. 
<laughs> not cool. If Paul is telling you you're not cool, yes. Yeah. So he's uh, he, he 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 still banging this drum of you know th- this is just before the debut Wings album, which is called Wildlife, Stephen. And, oh yes, of course. Of course. And uh, uh, you know Wings have, are are coming down the pipe, and he's he's obviously in promo mode to get a, a bit of Wings done. He even says, "I don't want Wings to become a media group with our signatures on knickers being sold for promotion," which is interesting considering the. Uh, 2020 uh, hype for Paul McCartney that's going on, um, but yeah, this is this is uh, sets John off, and he writes one of these famous kind of vitriolic letters to the melody maker, dear yes. Paul Linda, at all the wee McCartney. So what, what's he, what's he getting at in that letter? Well, this, this is this is a fascinating letter, and the other thing that's fascinating is the way that uh, melody maker. Um, uh, sort of deal with this. So they put it on the front page and the headline is Lennon raps Paul. Right. And you think, so John is is referred to by his surname. Paul is sort of just Paul. So <laughs> I think I think I think even that indicates I think that they're treating Lennon is, yeah. is more treated more seriously. It, it, than, I mean it, it might it might have just been to do with the the font size of the headline. Could I be. don't know. Could, could, John could raps be. Paul sounds a bit biblical, but anyway. It does. But uh, so he, he just lets rip. And this is a classic um, uh, sort of Lennon rant. But actually, if you go through the text of this letter, there are some very interesting um, things that emerge from the letter. So, he so Detective by, Stephen, tell us what you've discovered by studying well, this letter. <laughs> well, the first thing he, he, he sort of says is, you know, uh, you know, the lawyers will have to implement whatever we agree on. Right. And then he says, make up your mind. E.g., two weeks ago, I asked you on the phone, please let's meet without advisors and decide what we want. Mm. So he's explicitly referring here to there being a phone call. Yes. So the temptation would be to say, well, that follows Ray Coleman delivering the private letter. Yeah. So there must have been some um, uh, communication there. But John goes you know, goes on. And again, he's laying out, he's saying, you said under no condition, would you sell to us if we didn't do what you wanted to do? And you imagine this must be excruciatingly embarrassing for Paul to have conversations. um, You know, one other little lie in your, it's only Paulie uh, melody maker, let it be, was not the first bit of hype on a Beatles album, Mm. which again is a sort of criticism that McCartney had, had raised about the hype on what was clearly the last album. Yeah. But then John says, but we were intending to parody Tony Barrow. Yes. Uh, we and could John Tony... says that the, it was my idea to parody uh, the, the cover. Please Please Me album cover on the Let It Be cover, which is the original Get Back cover. It, so it's John's it, idea. Exactly. But then he says, mm. and your writing inside of the Wings album isn't exactly the realist, is it? So it's clear that in this letter, which is published on the 4th of December, John has at least seen the album, if not heard the album. Yeah, he, he must have, like, he's in New York. Somebody must have gotten him a copy of it because he's referring yeah. to the, the hype on the back of the Wildlife album. So yeah, even before it hits the shops, he's lucky enough to get a copy of Wildlife in his hands yes. as a pre-release treat. Um, um, so I think that that's very interesting. It just, it had never, I'd read this letter, I'd seen this letter a few times, but I'd never sort of thought to, to go through it line by line. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's very odd that John has seen or heard this because what that also means is he has at least seen the song title, Dear Friend. Dear Friend, yeah. If not actually managed to sit through the entire song. There's the, this letter has the famous line, which I quite like, which, uh, you know, Paul had said in the original one, oh, I prefer Imagine. It's a bit softer than yes. Band. And John says, you think Imagine ain't political? It's working class hero with sugar on it for conservatives like yourself. It's, it's really quite funny. Your politics are very similar to Mary Whitehouse. Um, uh, join the Rock Liberation Front before it gets you. Um, it's quite I mean, funny it's... that everyone thought rock was still that powerful at that time. Yes, it's, yes. Uh, well, a they, different era. Nobody had ever heard of Simon Cowell in those <laughs> days. Um, so, so yeah. So, so this is a this is a really kind of uh, vitriolic rant by by John, and I I think it's very calculated that he is putting into the public domain, um, you, you know, uh, what presumably Paul felt were private. Uh, 
conversations. And there's a reference in the letter that you think is to do with uh, a previous Apple artist. Yes, because after all of that, he signs off by saying, no hard feelings to you either. I know basically we want the same. And as I said on the phone and in this letter, whenever you want to meet, all you have to do is call. Hmm, that sounds and familiar. I, and I think it's that final phrase, all you have to do is call. Yes. Is 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 the big hook line from You've Got a Friend. Which had been Al. a hit just a few months earlier. Yeah, in, in May 1971. So it's like literally the last line is 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 from the song You've Got a Friend. So I think it's, perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but I think <laughs> it's a very, it's a phrase that anybody, particularly in 1971, would have instantly known what that meant. So it's um, a coded. Is it a coded way of saying, you know, you you've got a friend. We're still friends. Yeah, and and they are still friends because what happens next is that they they do meet in person in December nineteen seventy one, which seems to be at a point after this uh, letter. And we we talk about this a little bit in our wildlife episode. I know you've blocked that episode from your mind, uh, but yep. we did do an episode on wildlife. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't and, think I don't think I ever heard that. <laughs> and uh, it was probably just me talking to myself. And yeah. uh, John and Paul do meet up then later on in December nineteen seventy one and uh, start to bury the hatchet and then they do meet again in January 72 and we actually see all of this peter out this kind of John and Paul public sniping kind of goes yes, away I yeah I think they've they've kind of agreed that it's a particularly unedifying way to to conduct business or or, or to play out their relationship in public or in the pages of the um uh the music yeah press um, and so uh, that's John and Paul at Christmas 1971. There's a lot going on there, something we could easily uh, come back to again in the future, uh, particularly as it feeds into John sometime in New York City album as well. Um, Paul, of course, though, is the most important thing is that wildlife is out um, for uh, uh, on December 7th, 1971. So that's in everybody's stocking at Christmas, not particularly. Um, I, I don't recall getting it in 1971. Uh, we, and, and in that episode, it's all coming back to me now. We, we did, we did. Uh, it's like bubbling up. Uh, we 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 did talk about you know the launch party and yes, all that uh, stuff. That all they the do dancers in and Paul's suit that wasn't finished in time and all of that. So Crazy people guy. people, if they really want to, rather than listen to the album, it's much better to listen to our episode <laughs> on the album. Um, Ringo uh, in Christmas 1971 uh, 200 Motels premieres and we talk about that in our Ringo Star uh, movie star episode uh, and George you know we said he was the winner of Christmas 1970 is he the winner of Christmas 1971 because he has put an awful lot of effort into getting the concert for Bangladesh happening in 1971 and to get the album out for Christmas 1971 yes. which it it doesn't come out for Christmas in the UK. It comes out in January 72, but it does get out just in time for Christmas in the in the US. And that's a pretty big achievement. That's a pretty big achievement. Uh, it comes out on the 20th of December in the States and uh, in January in 1972 in the UK. Um, uh, there seems to be a bit of a tortured history to this. And we, we, we maybe we'll do an episode on, on Bangladesh, the concert and all the sort of legal machinations that went on uh, behind the scene to get to get this out but essentially um you, you know there were early mixes that had to be approved by the various artists you know george was sending you think of the lineup on, mm. on the stage at that time uh you know the only one was leon russell i think he chose to remix his version of, of jump and jack flash um but uh some touching up of uh uh, vocals on Why My Guitar Gently Weeps, a bit of an edit on Wah Wah. Mm. But generally speaking, um, the, the work on the album has been done yeah. um, fairly early on. Um, th there's comments about Spectre wanting to push up the crowd noise to sort of get the excitement, etc. But then the actual release is delayed because there's an argument between Capital and Columbia, Columbia being Dylan's um, uh, label. Uh, record label. Yeah. And I think I think it was decided that Columbia would have the cassette version of the album and then you know Capital would get the rest but it's just going on and on and on and on and it's not getting to the market and therefore the money isn't coming in and the money isn't going to get to the beneficiaries and if you go on to YouTube uh, you can see George's appearance on the Dick Cavett yeah show. this is where the Dick Cavett appearance is isn't it yeah because he's trying to force the issue he is. He, it's, it's the last week in November. He's desperate to get this out for Christmas. And he goes on to this show and basically says, uh, Capital are profiteering. 
mm. off the backs of famine victims. And uh, I'm going to take this elsewhere. I'm going to take the whole thing to Colombia. And uh, uh, capital backed down. They agreed to release it on Harris's terms. And uh, it, it finally hits the shops just before Christmas. Mm. And uh, it's uh, held off the, the number one spot by Don McLean's uh, American Pie in the US. Yeah. Uh, those uh, were the days. Now, what, what we say, this is another box set triple album with George's name attached to it. So the first two post uh, solo albums. And um, I'd read before, you know, there was, it went out at an extraordinarily high price. Mm. And it says in the UK, uh, it was £5.50 in mm-hmm. old money and £12.98 $12. in the States. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem particularly high. In in today's money, five pounds <laughs> I've done the 50, crunching, the number crunching. Go I've on. done the number crunching. <laughs> you could buy that in the UK in January for the equivalent of £71.15. <laughs> That's no. what the, the triple vinyl all things must pass, I think, roughly costs if you would go to a record store today to buy yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you think, uh, but it, it, it got... Uh, it, it got to number two. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, something that was costing 70, the equivalent of 70, 70 pounds. Uh, in the UK, it got to number one. Uh, certified gold on the 4th of January uh, in the US for 500,000 sales. And in March, 73 won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. And uh, there's a photograph you can find on the internet of Ringo oh, yeah. at the ceremony in Nashville, literally uh, with a tray of Grammys because every <laughs> artist who was there had to get a Grammy. I'd say there was another tray in the other hand of something else. Of something else. Of Brandy Alexander's. <laughs> yes. So that's Christmas 1971. Things do start to calm down a little bit. Christmas 1972, George yep. actually isn't nearly as visible. In fact, I think for George, for Christmas 1972, he's probably just sitting in Friar Park. We haven't had a... Having a rest. He's having a well-deserved rest. He's, he's, he's put out two uh, triple albums, uh, done some production work at Apple, um, you know, he's having, he's having, he's, a, he's allowed to have some time off. Yeah. Uh, Ringo himself, he's, uh, he, you know, the, 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 we talked about his movies in our episode, but Born to Boogie gets premiered in time for Christmas, 1972. Uh, that premiere party we talked about is on December 14th. Son of Dracula is in post-production and that'll take about a decade. <laughs> so going. So yeah, going. In some ways, it, uh, you know, has it ever really been produced? Um, uh, and my favourite part of Ringo at Christmas 1972 is who visits him at home on Christmas Day? Keith Moon. That's exactly who you want to see. That, I mean, that's it. There, there, there's, there, there are heart sink moments in your life when you're sitting <laughs> down and the doorbell rings and you're like, oh, Jesus. But who you know, is it? Who is somebody it? With, somebody with a present. And, yeah, and it's Keith. Keith Moon uh, knocking on Ringo's door on, on, on Christmas Day. Um, uh, for the Beatles uh, themselves, uh, again, the entity that is the Beatles is still, you know, in legal uh, quagmire, but certainly a lot more civil than they were uh, the previous year. Uh, Help, the movie, is on uh, Boxing Day on the BBC. And yes, Old Grey um, Whistle Test shows cavern footage. Yes, I don't think I would have been allowed to stay up late enough to see the Old Grey Whistle Test. But mm-hmm. uh, this might be the first time... I saw, or at least remember seeing the Beatles uh, on TV. You must have my... just been in the crib, Stephen. I was in the crib. I was in the crib. Uh, my parents pushed the crib in front of the TV <laughs> and went out for the night. Uh, it, it, I, 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 I seemed. I have a very. My earliest memory of the Beatles is is that scene at the end of Help of them running down the beach. Okay. And so it, yeah, it, there weren't many avenues for it to be on TV. No. Back no. in the. Um... No. The distant past, so in, uh, yes, in this in 1972, 1972. That's three, only yeah. three or four years ago. That's absolutely yes. normal. Um, that's uh, and what, what I've noticed online is, you know, the Beatles at Christmas on the BBC in the 70s has it, it means a lot to a lot of people. There are a core group of people who were too young for the Beatles in the 60s yes. for whom those Christmas exertion, uh, uh, you know, exhibitions on, on BBC Two really meant a lot and really connected them with the group. So they they, they can't be um, overstated how important they were. So, yeah, so then there's John uh, for Christmas 1972 and that's when he finally manages to get Happy Christmas War is Over out in the UK. And um, that's, a, that's a publishing thing. I mean, it's probably, it seems like it was too late to get the tapes over and back and get it pressed and published because it's only finished at the end of October. But publishing is the reason given and there is a publishing problem, isn't there? There is. I mean, I, I, this is the relates back to Lou Grade and ATV Music having taken over Northern Songs. So around this time, uh, you'll notice that Paul starts writing with 
uh, Linda. John starts riding with Yoko, which means essentially there's a 50-50 split um, on the royalties before it ever gets anywhere near uh, ATV. Uh, the, the, you know, Lou Grade doesn't take kindly to this. And, um, you know, he, he threatens all sorts of legal things ultimately leads to the James Paul McCartney special for ATV. So it's, it's you know, it's not all bad. <laughs> well, it, it leads to John appearing on the tribute to Lou Grade and, as and well. So Exactly. It's... So we, we, we kind of got these two two things to, uh, to come out of it. But yeah, I think this is this is part of the reason there, there's still this wrangling going on about uh, publishing. So, he, I mean, here we are, you know, three, four years later, and there, th- this is still going on. But the song gets to number four. Mm. And um, in December 1980, it, it got to number two. And it, and it keeps um, it keeps reappearing in the charts every year. Yeah. I remember the CD single came out of it in 1988 and it was a supplement CD single to go with the Imagine soundtrack and so I, oh, I felt I felt uh, compelled. That's how I first owned Happy Christmas Wars over. Um, but it's also the, the halcyon early 70s days of UK Christmas charts smash hits uh, which, you know, John is leading the charge. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it is noticeable that, you know, the Christmas charts and Christmas singles, I think, have a different type of resonance in the UK than they do in the US. The US don't really care about the Christmas number one. Uh, it's a different type of race. I mean, there is Christmas music and Christmas yeah. classics, but it's a different type of thing. It is. It's always been a particular sort of badge of honour to have a number one at Christmas in, in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure that is, is it just a sort of uh you know kind of show busy entertainment thing or is that that that's always been the case it is it is strange it seems to be a, a uniquely uh british phenomenon mm. and uh paul then for christmas 1972 is uh he's putting out high 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 uh, another christmas <laughs> song uh getting high 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 christmas and and this this is uh the, the guy just can't catch a break he's banned by the bbc you know yeah, it's Again. it's odd when you think about it. It's a very odd song to put out at Christmas. You don't think? Well, it, well, given, given that in the UK, Christmas number one is a thing. Yes. No, I think that whole Paul's whole 1972 is just kind of odd, anyway. You know, but that yeah. that that space, and we talked about it in, the, in in the episodes in season one, that kind of odd space between Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, and he's putting yeah. out standalone singles, and he's not he's not really being cool and all the court stuff is happening and his press is bad and yeah it's just he's uh, yeah i mean he he we 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 touched on this before this is this is the point at which he is really struggling of the four Mm. he is the one that 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 is confounding the sort of commercial expectations and he really is struggling yeah um so he has high 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 out and it's it's banned because uh the bbc think he says body gun but of course he says polygon of course which lay you on the bed get me ready get you ready for my polygon Mm. that makes perfect sense well yeah for you and all that kind of stuff and 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 also it's the high 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 is is a kind of drug reference so he's going for drug references (laughs) sexual references yeah, uh, and the result is that the B side or the double A side, Seamoon, is mm. the one that gets all the airplay, and that's um, that's one where he does sound high, high, high. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think that 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 missed intro is deliberate? He rehearsed the missed intro. I, well, we know he has form for rehearsing yeah. mistakes, but it's still uh, the vibe but, of Sea Moon is is, is, is yeah. a, it's a it's a it's a got a it's got a smoky vibe. I, yeah. Can I can I give you my fu- my fun fact about this uh, single? Go on. It gets a number five in the UK, number ten in the US in January uh, um, 1973, but it gets a number one in Spain, which is where he wrote the song. That's very interesting. I did not yeah, know that. There you go. That's um, uh, Generalissimo uh, Franco for you. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Always a great patron of the arts, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, and there's other kind of movies and things knocking around. ABC TV in the States shows John's one-to-one gig from 1972, uh, mm-hmm. which is the, the live in New York City uh, concert film that we know from later years. And the Imagine film is also shown on TV. So, you know, they're still... Uh, they're still out there. Still box office. Uh, oh, big time. Um, and then Christmas 1973, uh, the BBC again show A Hard Day's Night on Boxing Day. Did they have nothing else to show? They're just showing the same two films over and over. Well, but but yeah. uh, they uh, what what could what could they have shown? Magical Mystery Tour on, you know. Uh, it wouldn't have hurt, you know. Um, yeah. So which order to go in, I guess. I mean, Ringo is 
again at a movie premiere. So the Blind Man premiere is on December the, the 27th. Um, yep. But Ringo is starting to become the Ringo that we know and love. He's king of the world. He is king he's, of the world because Photograph has headed up the charts and the Ringo LP is definitely going into stockings for Christmas. Yep, yep. So he is absolutely uh, top of his game commercially here and leaving everybody else um, in the shade. Um, and uh, apparently he eats turkey for Christmas. Did you know that, Stephen? I, I, I thought it was a sausage. I thought he had a sausage <laughs> at Christmas despite being a vegetarian. He, yeah, he's a vegetarian. He's asked in Christmas 73, you know, are you a vegetarian? He says... Yeah, I am, but I still like turkey at Christmas, and that, well, that, <laughs> so that's what you know, he does. You can't you can't be too uh, draconian about these things. Uh, but yeah, so Ringo is starting to have uh, his dizzying heights as a solo artist, and you can go off and listen to our episode about the Ringo uh, album uh, from season two. Uh, George apparently for Christmas nineteen seventy three, he's uh, sitting by a log fire putting together some music. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I was listening, uh, just as you do, uh, to a promotional interview that he gave in 1975 for the um, Extra Texture album. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, you've got to pull all these threads together. And uh, they talk about the song Can't Stop Thinking About You. And he said, yeah, I, I remember. I think I wrote that in 1973. I, I was uh, sitting by a log fire at Christmas. So... There you go. And that turns up um, on Extra Texture, yeah, yeah. Extra Texture. And I think the song, uh, His Name is Legs, mm -hmm. uh, ladies and gentlemen, is also written around that time. And again, that's an Extra Texture song. And that's Legs Larry Smith from the Bonzo. Legs Larry Smith. He <laughs> is a great character. Anybody who doesn't know, he's the drummer with the Bonzo Dog Do Dare Band. Very close friend of George's mm -hmm. and uh, had involvement in various um uh, things he he if you've ever seen the film bullshot yes be careful how i say that um <laughs> handmade film which is kind of send up of bulldog drummond english yeah. sort of uh you know 39 steps um he's a tap dancer mm -hmm. uh tap dance on elton john song i think i'm gonna kill myself yeah that's a funny song <laughs> yeah from but these you know needs honky chat out needs needs tap dancing yep um and he designed the cover for gone tropo in 1982 and yes and i know what you're gonna i know exactly what you're going to say next and by extension i suppose he also therefore should get a credit for paul's egypt station yeah, album, which yeah. is a direct ripoff of uh Gone i Trouble. don't see the connection myself but if you say apart so. from the exactly similar layout and colors yeah listen you know paul's a paul's an original um so that's george um paul uh uh, in December 1973 for Christmas, he gives a great present to the world, which is Band on the Run, uh, which goes on to <laughs> goes on to um, make a bit well, of a difference in his solo career. Uh, it, it it does. We we've kind of talked about this in in in, in uh, the 74 episode. Yeah. It's a it's a bit of a slow build, slow it is. burn, and it's the um, second album of 73. It just slips yeah, out just in just time slips, for Christmas. It doesn't yeah. uh, it doesn't have a massive fanfare, although it's the one no, that makes it, the biggest it impact. It, and this is the thing. This is the thing that's you know no no doubt we'll have a five part episode on band on the run yes. at some point. But uh, it um, I'm joking. Oh. Uh, uh, but yeah, it has a really slow burn. Mm. Uh, it doesn't doesn't set the world on fire to begin with. Uh, and then Paul and Linda uh, make an experimental art film. No, they don't. <laughs> uh. <laughs> they appear on the BBC TV Disney Time Christmas special. In lovely jumpers. In lovely jumpers, in full-on Bruce McMouse mode. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, he. I guess you could argue he's got young kids at home. This is the meat and potatoes of what he wants to be doing. It's funny because that, uh, it seems to me that the Disney thing is, is uh, you know, we, we have Mary Had a Little Lamb, standalone single. He's kind of all over the place you've got the james mccartney special then you've got this and then in 1974 he becomes rock star paul yes uh, you know and to a degree a certain degree for a while he puts away the christmas jumpers and the family entertainment uh, approach and he has a he has a huge international success with wings of the rock band yeah no and the, that whole wings around the world uh routine yeah so so this is really your last chance to see paul in a jumper is what we're saying <laughs> uh so yeah that's um that's worth noting down um but do you know what i like to do on christmas day Stephen? is i like to go see a nice concert yes. in a cathedral maybe you know yeah, some lovely lovely christmas some lovely christmas uplifting. music uh yeah do you know if i was on holidays maybe in new york 
uh, on Christmas Day, 1973. Could I have enjoyed such a concert? You, you, you could. I mean, if if you happen to be at the Cathedral of uh, John the Divine, mm-hmm. I, I think there was a there was something on that day. If I check my notes, it was uh, on Christmas Day. Yoko oh. uh, was playing a concert in the cathedral. That's kind of um, exciting. Do we know what oh. uh, what she was playing? What her set list I, was? I, I really don't. I'm going to have to look that up. And, uh, <laughs> if that's on Setlist FM, I will be very surprised. If I can find the setlist for this, I will put together a Spotify playlist and uh, <laughs> we, we'll put it up with the... Um, uh, you'd like to think it must be, it must be uh, sort of well, it, a little bit acoustic-y. Maybe she does Listen, the Snow is Falling. With some Christmas themed. But the, what, what's very interesting is, I mean, Lennon uh, at this point, you know, Mind Games has just come out in November. It is funny how all these albums come out for Christmas yeah. time. And uh, Yoko's doing this concert, but she's, uh, she is David Spinoza is playing with her. Now, he's an interesting he, guy. Tell us about him. He is. David Spinoza was, was Yoko's band leader around this time. And, and uh, he had... Uh, worked on mind games uh, uh worked with uh, will go on to work um with yoko on feeling the space he was as a part of her live set but his his the first beatles connection that i'm aware of is he worked with paul uh during the ram sessions in in late 71. Mm. Yeah, so as we said, Ram, you know, starts to come together in New York in October 71 uh, and November 71. And David Spinoza is part of the crack session crew that gets the call up for Ram as Paul is trying to put feelers out to see whether, um, or sorry, 1970 rather, uh, is yeah. when they're recording, uh, as he puts the feelers out to, you know, as he you know starts to put wings together in his mind. So Denny Sewell is pulled from that pack for wings, yeah. but uh, yeah. David so Spinoza it, I mean, it, doesn't get the call. Well, well, Spinoza, well, Spinoza works for him, does some recording, but then Paul lets him go. Yeah. Um, and he's replaced by Hugh McCracken, uh, who's, again, another top session player who will turn up much, much later in the day on uh, Double Fantasy. Yeah. And what what's kind of sweet is that uh, David Spinoza, once he does start working with Yoko and, uh, and John's orbit, is he, he doesn't mention Paul at all, or he's afraid to mention Paul. <laughs> That's it. There, there, there's there's uh, an interview with him where he talks about, um, y- you know, he discovered that Lennon was not aware that he'd worked with McCartney. This is during the mind game session. And he was afraid he was going to be fired. Uh, but when Lennon did learn of it, his only comment was that, you know, Paul knows how to pick good people. That's quite, I think that's a very short but telling statement, you know? Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Because it reinforces John's decision if Paul has made the same decision. Uh, uh, this guy is thinking that there's going to be conflict and John's response is, oh, I must have done something right. Paul picks good people. That's great. Let's keep on going. Yes, yes, that's it. And, uh, you know, there's an interview from Guitar World in 2012 with Spinoza and they sort of ask him about Paul McCartney and he goes, oh, yeah, he's the cute Beatle. (laughs) And uh, I said, he's he's all kidding aside, he's as talented as he is cute. Um, Very creative man. But I I actually recall an interview with Spinoza in which he was quite dismissive of McCartney. Sort of saying, you know, he didn't even know the names of the chords and he would play something and say, oh, play that, you know, the pretty chord, the the nice sounding one. And, you know, uh, it, it would be a very different experience, I think, for McCartney to end up in New York amongst these absolutely top yeah, session players. Yeah, who are extreme. You know, it's like the wrecking crew style yeah. of, of approach, where you or, or the or the Motown uh, guys that they're, they're there, they're professionals there to do a job. Um, but what what seems to have happened is that McCartney said, "Come and play on this album. You working with me? Don't play any other gigs." Mm. Um, but Spinoza realized that uh, they were free in the afternoon, and he started moonlighting, and uh, Paul gave him the elbow. Oh, gosh. Uh, he also goes on to work with Ringo. So he's worked with three yep. uh, three yep. of the four Beatles. Uh, he's on the Ringo, the fourth album in, in 1977. And the other thing that's happening that Christmas is that uh, John is involved in uh, the song Too Many Cooks with Mick Jagger. Yes. That's an odd um, thing. How did all that happen? That, 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 that's a bit is of a, odd. It's a bit of an, a little dark black hole, isn't it? It is. And it's not a song that comes out no. at all, you know, and, and it's a fantastic uh, performance. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think I've I read interviews with the engineers saying, you know, they, they knew this was just for fun. Mm. They knew this wasn't going to come out. This isn't going to end up on a Stones record. Jagger's not, it's not going to end up on a Lennon record. It was just something they were doing for fun. And Lennon produces it. Um, and it finally 
turns up on the best of Mick Jagger. I'm sure everybody has that uh, in there. <laughs> is it the only song on the best of Mick Jagger? <laughs> I'm, that's a low blow. I do that's apologize. Blow. I'm so um, it's it's probably the best song. Yeah. On, uh, but it, it's it's very good. But it it, it shows you sort of heading into the quote unquote lost weekend session john is 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 coming out of a sort of mind games he's he's been quite creative mm. uh then we have this kind of tip into 1974 yeah and that brings us to the end of Christmas 1973. And it also brings us to the end of part one of The Beatles at Christmas. Now, you know, as if we have planned this, we we advise you now that we've reached the end of 1973 to go back and listen to our two episodes about 1974, which will fill in the, the, all the, the whole, all the four seasons between Christmas 73 and Christmas 74 before we, we, we dump, jump back into uh, The Beatles uh, in Christmas uh, in the 70s uh, in part two when we get to when we're going to cover from 1974 to 1979 yeah um so but that's all we have for this time what do you think were do you, was anybody out there watching the beatles uh christmas uh, performances being shown on bbc during the 1970s uh or if you have any other ideas let us know we are always available in the usual places we're on twitter at beatles pod um we have the uh, nothing is real uh, private facebook group which uh, Stephen will let you into and um you know, we appreciate all the downloads and all the nice comments um, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we really want to thank you all for all of those. Uh, but for now, for part one of The Beatles at Christmas, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.